Scripture says in Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God. Let's take a moment and and bow in prayer. Church, would you please bow with me? Father in heaven, we just worship you this morning. We worship you by the blood of your son, Jesus. We say thank you, God, that you sent your son as one of us, taking on the form of man, becoming man, and dying in our place for our sins. We say thank you. Lord, this morning we come together to worship your holy name. And Father, in the midst of uh, this troubling uprise, uptick in case numbers and and different uh, statements being issued from the government, in the midst of all these things, we pray, Lord, that you would draw our gaze heavenward, that we would, in the midst of bad news, Remember that ultimately all is good because you are our fortress, our strong tower. And we pray, Lord, this morning as we worship you, that you would help us to be still and remember that you are God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, good morning. You may be seated. We want to welcome you this morning to this gathering of First Baptist Church. A couple of quick announcements that I just want to make you aware of this morning before we continue on. Uh, with our worship service this morning. The first thing I just want to say is that you have undoubtedly heard that there have been more and more uh, restrictions issued by the provincial government in terms of uh, protocols and precautions that we can take with regards to COVID-19. 
And uh, just in terms of talking about it with several of our leaders, I just want to remind you always, we do a great job here keeping it down to 50 in this room, 50 in the fireside room next door, and of course the, the group of 50 downstairs. Everybody's separated and isolated out, and we're doing a great job. Uh, just want to encourage you where we sometimes run into trouble, not always, but sometimes, is when we leave at the conclusion of the worship service. We all tend to crash right out there into that foyer. And so, uh, again, not saying that, uh, you know, you can't socialize and wave and greet each other and, and all of that. But as we're leaving, I just encourage you to remember uh, to try to give yourself at least six feet between yourself and, and people around you. It, might, it means that you might need to take a little bit more time getting out of here at the conclusion of the worship service. But uh, that's what we need to do. So I just want just to encourage you to remember that and to remind you of that. Later today, after the worship service, later this afternoon, we're going to have a quarterly business meeting. It's scheduled for one o'clock. Uh, the agendas were emailed out a week and a half ago, but if you need a paper copy, those will be available, made available to you as well. And then next Sunday, uh, we have communion coming. So we're going to partake of communion. Again, we have a, a particular way in which we're going to go about that and do that, but we want to make sure you're aware well in advance so that you can take this next week to, uh, to prepare your heart. So just want, to, just want to make you aware of that. In addition, we have the pro-life vigil, the, the Kamloops pro-life vigil. It's going to be the first Friday in November, which is November 6th, this coming Friday. And it'll be from 10 to 11, and there's going to be a group of individuals standing in front of the church praying silently. And uh, again, all of the different protocols are going to be enforced, six feet, social distancing, all of that. It's a silent, prayerful event with signs available. If you're interested in participating, uh, just, just let us know. You don't actually even need to let us know. Just come. It'll be Friday morning. Um, just come. And I am also in need of help with a special project. Uh, if you have a knack for wrapping gifts, uh, we, I'm not talking about Operation Christmas Child. That's coming up. Um, we're going to be stuffing shoe boxes. Uh, in fact, that's November set. That's this coming. That's this coming Saturday. So be sure to make a note of that. Uh, and by all means, come and join us for that. But I'm I'm in need of help with a special project. Uh, the Kamloops Pro Life Society gave me about 40 books. Uh, that the book the title of the book is Why Pro Life, and it shows how the gospel and the pro life issue are interrelated, how one reflects on the other. And they wanted to know if I would be willing to uh, give these books as gifts to pastors around town. And I told them that I would certainly be uh, willing to do that, and, uh, and I was. I was willing to do that. Um, but what has happened is that uh, with Kyla being on, on bed rest and all of that sort of thing, uh, the responsibilities that I've stepped in to cover and oversee for her have kept me quite quite busy. And so I'm in need of a few ladies with a, a thumb for gift wrapping. Uh, if that's you, I appreciate you guys. You have no idea. I was never going to do a good job at the gift wrapping. And so I think overall, the Lord is going to make this a better thing all around if I could just get some help. If you're interested, just come see me after the worship service. I just need to wrap about 40 books and then, you know, put, I've written a little letter, go, you know, put it in an envelope. We can send those out to all the different pastors around town. I would be very, very grateful. And that about does it for announcements this morning. Again, I just want to make you aware of the business meeting following the worship service. Uh, and I just want to speak to it just a little bit this morning before we get going. In John chapter 4, uh, Jesus and the disciples are traveling through Samaria. And if you're familiar with the context, you know that's just a place 
that Jews didn't go because of all of the tension between the Samaritans and, and the Jews. And nevertheless, Jesus led his disciples right into Samaria. Of course, they're needing to purchase supplies, and so Jesus sends them away from the well into town to get supplies while he himself waits there. And it's at that time in John chapter 4 that he has this encounter with this Samaritan woman. He's waiting there, and this is the time that God has appointed in which he brings the Samaritan woman to meet Jesus. And of course, they have their their great conversation, and the Samaritan woman comes to faith in Christ and gets saved. Well, we have a similar sort of circumstance happening here at First Baptist Church. Most of you are aware uh, that Kelson Group, about three years ago, purchased all of the property behind us from 4th Avenue to 5th Avenue and all the way down to, uh, to Battle Street. And they have released plans that they've been working on for the last two years to develop the neighborhood behind us. Currently, there are about 20 homes, uh, aside from the two apartment buildings, there are 20 homes on these neighborhood streets behind us, accounting for about 60 to 70 individuals who who live back there. And Kelson Group has plans to demolish all of those homes and to build one 18-story and another 22-story high-rise building. And we're going to see the population just within 100 feet of the back lot here, the back alley here, we're going to see that population jump from 60 individuals, 70 individuals, upwards of 1,200 to 1,300 people, all moving in right behind us, right next door. And so what we are seeing here is an event not unlike Jesus at the well in Samaria. Uh, We have been here for years and years and years, and now as a result of development in the downtown core, as a result of densification, that's that's the buzzword, we have a special opportunity to begin praying and planning and thinking about how it is we're going to reach these 1,400 souls with the gospel. And so we are uh, discussing all of that today at the business meeting, but I'd invite you to join with us. As a church, that's our goal, to transform the heart of the downtown with the heart of Christ. That's our mission here at First Baptist Church. And so I just invite you to be in prayer. We're being given by the Lord an incredible opportunity to be his witnesses. And, uh, and that, that doesn't come lightly. Uh, that's a huge blessing and, and a responsibility that we need to steward. And so I just invite you to be in prayer for that. And, of course, we'll be discussing more about that this morning. But that does it for me for announcements. And so at this time, uh, this is when we would normally give. Uh, so for those of you who are following online at home on Facebook or YouTube or the church website, there's a link for giving. You'll find it on the lower left corner of your screen, lower right corner of your screen, my left, your right. And for those of you who are here this morning, we just remind you that as you're worshiping the Lord this morning, this is a time in which we give back to the Lord um, at the beginning or at the end of the worship service. We're not going to be passing an offering plate, and so we just ask at the beginning or at the end of the worship service, if you just take your offering and drop it into the drop box at the back of the room, we would appreciate it. Nevertheless, I just want to give you this time right now just to pause and reflect on all that God has blessed us with. And so if you would, just bow with me in prayer. A Father in heaven, we say thank you for all that you have given to us. Lord, we we recognize that all that we have comes from your hand. And so, Lord, it is our joy and our privilege to give back to you this morning, to give back freely, Lord, out of the abundance of all that you have given to us. Father, we know that there are many who have never heard the name Christ. 
who have never been presented with the good news that you love this world in such a way that you sent your son to atone for sins and by your spirit you send your son into our hearts to give us the strength that is necessary to repent, to turn away from all of our sins, to turn to you. Father, the world is trapped. They're in chains and bondage. You're the only one that can set them free. Father, we give to that mission. We give so that missionaries can have the resources that are necessary to free them to preach that gospel. And so, Lord, out of all that you have given to us this morning, we give back. And we pray, God, that you would take this humble offering, small though it is, and that you would bless it, Lord, that you would use it for exalting your son's name over all the earth. Lord, we pray, God, from the east to the west, from the rising to the setting of the sun, everywhere there are people, we pray, Lord, that this gospel would go forth to the ends of the earth and that the name of Christ would be boldly proclaimed. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to invite you at this time, if you would, please stand as you are able in honor of the reading of God's Word. And I'd like to invite uh, Miss Judy Gleason to come join us up here. Uh, and she's going to be reading the scripture to us this morning. Um, Miss Judy just spent the last month downstairs with the Sunday school, and she's not the only one. There's a couple of other uh, folks that have returned topside, and we just want to welcome you back up from the lower decks to the, the wonderful topside portion of the ship here. We're glad to see you guys back, and Miss Judy, would you please come? to 19.7. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sempera he had, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he reasoned, he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollo, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived... He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And when it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that. There is a Holy Spirit. 
And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. They, there were about 12 men in all. God bless the reading of his word. And would you please remain standing as we continue in worship. my soul arise shake off your guilty fears the bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears before the throne my surety stands before the throne my surety stands my name is written on his hand he ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Oh my all arise, behold the risen Christ, your great high priest, your spotless sacrifice. Oh, my soul arise, God owns you as his child. Shake off your guilty fears, my soul arise. Five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him all, forgive they cry, forgive him all, forgive they cry. Don't let that ransom sinner die. Oh my soul, arise, behold the risen Christ. Spotless sacrifice. Oh, my soul, arise. God owns you as his child. Shake off your guilty fears, my soul, arise. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me as his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Oh, my 
Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead, we are one with him again. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Church, come stand in the light. The glory of God has defeated the night. I'm singing, no, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, church, come stand in the light. Our God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with him again. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with him again. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the Sure. 
price it has been paid for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon and he was raised to overthrow the grave to this hour my sin has been defeated Jesus now and ever is my plea oh the chains are released I can sing I am free and not I but through Christ in me with every breath I long to follow Jesus for he has said that he will bring me home and day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne to this I hold my hope is only Jesus all the glory evermore to him when the This is my plea, and it evermore will be this way. Christ paid for my sins. Can you say amen to that? I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Uh, we're looking again at 1824 uh, to 19 Chapters 18.4 to 19.7 this morning. We're continuing our way through the text, and we began to look last week at the fact that we are one with Christ, and I want to look again at that exact same theme, oneness with Christ, and how do we abide in that union that we have with the Lord. My kids have become avid Star Wars fans, and I just want to add this caveat I am fully aware that uh, Star Wars does not present a Christian worldview. I think that is obvious. I am not allowing them to indulge in Star Wars in the hopes that someday they will grow up to become a Jedi and wield the Force, okay? That is not uh, what we're doing there. We are just enjoying it as a, as a science fiction yarn uh, and nothing more than that. But uh, Disney Plus has recently released the second season of The Mandalorian. Okay, so one of you is really into it. My kids are intuitive. If my kids were in the room this morning, they'd be like, woo! They'd be like cheering for that right now. But in The Mandalorian, it's essentially a tale of a, of a bounty hunter who uh, somehow or other comes into uh, adoptive 
foster care possession, you might say, of a baby Yoda, a baby Yoda. Um, and as he's trying to restore this baby Yoda to his family, uh, they go through all of these impossible situations, which is to be expected in a, in a science fiction uh, story. But you learn that this bounty hunter, this, this character referred to as the Mandalorian, you, you learn that being a Mandalorian isn't being a particular ethnicity or being from a particular planet per se. It's more that you subscribe to a creed. And time and again, this Mandalorian will talk to uh, this other Mandalorian who is kind of like the Zen father, master Mandalorian. And time and again, they will discuss which direction they should go, what they should do, and time and again, some impossible instruction is given, do this, go in this direction, achieve this, this goal over here. Why? Because, they say, it is the way. It is the way. This reference to this path, this, this direction that we are called to follow, that is the end-all, be-all. This is what we do. We do it. Why? Because it is the way. The Apostle Paul is traveling through the inland country, and he comes to Ephesus, and I think in a very real sense, that's exactly what he encounters. As we saw last week, he meets these 12 disciples who know only the baptism of John, and as he begins to interact with them, he notices that there's something off about these guys. And, and I think if, if the Apostle Paul were to ask them, why are you doing the things that you're doing, they would shrug and give that sort of rote Mandalorian answer, we're doing it because it's the way. This is just what we do. And we're confronted with a question as we look at these 12 guys this morning. Is there a difference between discipleship and belief? Are we called to one over the other? Are we called to one instead of the other? Is there a relationship between obedience and grace. That's what we're looking at this morning. I invite you to look with me. We'll pick it up briefly just to remind ourselves where we're at in, in chapter 18. Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside. He has come. He has preached. He's preaching about Jesus. Um, it says that he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. This is a reference to John the Baptist. He knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures 
that the Christ was Jesus. We meet Apollos. He's a powerful preacher and teacher of the Scriptures. He knows his Bible forwards and backwards, and he is able to argue eloquently and persuasively in favor of Jesus being the Messiah, being the Christ, being the one to whom all the Scriptures point to. And he is arguing with Jews, and he is refuting their arguments, and he is winning the debate. Time and again, he goes into these synagogues, and he crushes the discussion. He proves, beyond a doubt, from the book, Jesus is the Messiah. He proves from the book that Jesus is the way. But he knows only the baptism of John, the scriptures say. And Priscilla and Aquila have to take him aside, and they have to explain to him the way more accurately. Then we come to chapter 19. Paul makes his way to Ephesus through the inland country, and he encounters there 12 disciples, undoubtedly who had been ministered to by Apollos. And when Paul encounters these guys, he notices that there's something a little bit off about them. One of the things that comes out in the question is that they know John's baptism. They know the baptism, as it's explained here in chapter 19, the baptism of repentance. It says in verse 2, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He notices that there's something off about these guys. And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? The understanding being that when they go through with baptism, they're not merely doing something symbolic, although the water is symbolic, the act is symbolic, but that there is real meaning behind it based on what they believe, based on what they know about God. They don't know that there's a Holy Spirit. They cannot be baptized into a Holy Spirit if they don't know that there's supposed to be a Holy Spirit. So then the question is, what kind of baptism did you undergo? They said, we went under John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. That's what comes next. He says, into what then were you baptized? They said, this is verse 3, into John's baptism. And Paul explains it. John, verse 4, baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come. So what we have here between Apollos and chapter 18 and these guys here in the beginning of chapter 19 is we have individuals who are disciples. In fact, the verse even says that in verse in verse 1, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus and there he found it says, quote, some disciples. Just as John the Baptist had disciples, these men are described as being disciples. They are individuals who are disciplining their lives. They are striving valiantly to adjust their conduct, their way of life, and even, you might say, their thinking to conform to the pattern that John the Baptist laid out, which was, we're all living in sin, but there is one who can save us from our sins, repent of your sins, humble yourselves, make straight paths for the Lord, make it easy for the Messiah when he comes, make it easy for him to come. And that is essentially what they're believing in. They didn't know that there was a Holy Spirit. They'd been told something about this Jesus character. Paulus is preaching Jesus, but even then, 
Apollos has to be taken aside. These 12 guys have to be explained. And today, you and I need to hear that message again. It is not a matter exclusively of just believe, of just disciplining your life to follow what Jesus would have you to follow. If you try to just walk the path of Christ with this clenched fist, gritted teeth, rugged determination to obey, you will find yourself time and again coming short. None of us, no matter how hard we try, no matter how valiantly we strive, will ever, ever in our own strength and in our own power be able to live out the life of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul tells them, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And he begins to explain to them the cross. You see, Jesus, guys, he came and he died for your sins. He died, you know, at this point in time in history of the first century. He died maybe 20, 30 years ago now. And he died that time in the past in order to make atonement to pay the debt that you owed to God the Father. You've been forgiven of all your sins. You must believe in that. And here is where we see the dichotomy that we often encounter in Christian life. Is being a follower of Jesus then a question of belief, believe harder, believe more and more in extravagant grace, or is being a follower of Jesus Christ a question of discipleship? Is it a question of discipline, that is, obeying more and more and more? On the one hand, we have believe more. On the other hand, we have do more. And in my own personal ministry, and I've observed this in the ministries of many other pastors and preachers, and I see this in the life of the church there is this tendency to swing um, as though we're on a pendulum from one extreme to the next. I liken it to listening to competing songs on two different radios. You, you have on the one radio uh, a country love song playing, and it's got those crooning, swooning, melodious lyrics being belted out in that country drawl. And then on the other radio, you have uh, a little bit of hip-hop coming with that punchy, punchy rat-ta-ta-ta-ta on the drums and those low bass notes, and it's just like boom, boom, boom. And you might say that when it comes to obedience or radical discipleship, you might hear that being played in the hip-hop, and then when it comes to grace and just believing in God's love and just knowing that God loves you, you'd hear that over here on the country song. And pastors sometimes, based on what they're seeing within their church congregation, they'll, they'll turn up the volume on the country song, just believe more in God's love for you, God loves you, and just they're going to turn that country song up nice and loud. But of course you have the competing and quite discordant strains of hip-hop pumping out on this side, so if they're going to turn this one up, guess what they have to do? They have to turn the other one down a little bit this way. Up this way, down this way. So they turn this one up, they turn the other one down. And then the church, over a period of time, begins to preach that message to themselves. We begin to hope in it. We begin to believe in it. Yes, God loves us. Yes, yes, it's great. It's like a country love song. He just loves us. He just wants to be with us. It's wonderful. 
And preachers tend to notice this, and even it becomes a, a sort of an experience that you begin to feel within the congregation. People start to think to themselves, well, yeah, but, you know, there are lots of verses out there that, that say we should o- obey too, right? I mean, what about those verses? And, of course, then the pastor or the preacher recognizes that perhaps we've dwelled, we've dwelt a little too long on the country song, and now it's time to turn up the hip-hop of obedience. And so we crank up the hip-hop. But again, we have these discordant notes, these discordant notes. And so as he turns up the hip-hop, guess what? He's got to turn down the country song. This isn't just a struggle that we experience here. It's something that has been known throughout the history of the church. Going back just to the previous century, one of the best books I ever read on the grace of God's love was the Ragamuffin Gospel. The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning, in which he elaborates on the story of the prodigal son and how the son returned home after having wasted his life away, and and the father was just waiting to run to him. And Brennan Manning elaborates on it. It's kind of a running commentary on that particular parable. And he makes this statement towards the end of his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. He says, quote, My message, unchanged for more than 50 years, is this. God loves you unconditionally, as you are and not as you should be, because nobody is as they should be. It is the message of grace a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wage as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal, reeking of sin, and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. This grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. Grace is sufficient. Grace is enough. Grace is all. You hear that that country song just cranking out there, right? And in that same century, within that same span of time, there comes along another pastor, a Lutheran pastor, by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic Christian work, Discipleship, he hits the mute button on the country song, and he just goes full crank with the hip-hop song. In his book, uh, Discipleship, he offers a running commentary of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he goes on to blast what he refers to as cheap grace. He says, quote, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. Cheap grace means the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and those who try to use grace as a dispensation or or an excuse, if I could translate a little bit for you here, those who try to use grace as an excuse from following Christ are simply deceiving themselves. We confess that although our church is orthodox as far as her doctrine of grace is concerned, we are no longer sure that we are members of a church which even bothers to follow its Lord. Cheap grace. And in that particular book, Bonhoeffer goes on to say that ministers all over Germany at this point in time have been pouring out cheap grace, cheap grace, just believe that God loves you. And in this particular book, he calls them back to discipleship, 
You have to follow Christ. And so we experience that tension here. Which is it? Is it believe that God loves you no matter what? Or is it follow Jesus? Now, either fork in the road that we choose to take will lead to certain spiritual dangers, certain spiritual maladies. If we take the road of extravagant grace, what many have noticed, what you undoubtedly have experienced in your own life as you've pursued that road, is that as you chase after grace, 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 and you divorce that, you separate that from discipleship, you find yourself over time becoming perhaps apathetic. No matter what, God loves me. No matter what, he's in my corner. He's going to take care of me. It's unconditional love, extravagant grace. At the end of the day, no matter what I do, I can just live however I want, and God loves me. This kind of attitude led to Gandhi's famous quote, Oh, I love the Jesus of Christianity. It's the Christians that I, can't, I don't care for too much. Extravagant grace pursued to the exclusion of discipleship leads to, most of the time, apathy. You say, okay, I know what you're doing here, Pastor. You're, you're getting ready to tell us that we need to actually follow the path of discipleship, radical discipleship instead of extravagant grace. That's the direction we need to go. Well, here's the problem. You go down the path of radical discipleship, and you will find yourself saying to yourself in the mirror every morning, I need to do more. I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to be going to more Bible studies. I need to be going to more fellowships. Anytime there's an opportunity to serve within the church, I need to be throwing my hand up saying, I love Jesus. Of course I love Jesus. Therefore, I will take that opportunity to serve. And you get plugged in to where five nights out of the week, six nights out of seven, you're out of the house doing things, doing things, doing things, doing things for the Lord. You're up at the crack of dawn reading your Bible. You're going and you're serving by night. You're working your normal nine-to-five job, you're, you're sharing the gospel, and you find yourself within a relatively quick period of time pursuing that radical discipleship road with reckless abandon, you find yourself in time exhausted, dead tired of it all. So on the one hand, radical grace leads us to apathy where we're becoming slothful and lazy and just sitting back on our couches and saying, whatever happens, happens. God is good no matter what. He loves me. And then on the other hand, we're working so hard, we come to a place where we say, you know, I'm exhausted, and I didn't think following Jesus was going to kill me the way that it is. After all, didn't Christ say, take my yoke upon you? My yoke is light. My burden is easy. How is that true? The answer, and I want to also just go back to the ragamuffin gospel for a second. He does this running commentary on the prodigal son, that parable from Luke 15. And we've all heard it before. We understand that a man went away into a far country. He took his father's inheritance and he wasted it on, on just, just sinful living. And, and then when he ran out of money, he came home and the father ran to greet him. And we title that parable, The Parable of the Prodigal Son. And yet that is not the title that Jesus gave it. Jesus begins in Luke chapter 15, there was a man who had two sons. 
And that parable is just as much about the prodigal son that ran away into a far country that needed to hope and believe in his father's gracious love for him. It's just as much about that as it is about the son who never left. And you'll recall at the end of that parable, after the son that had gone away into another country came home, Jesus welcomed him. But then the son that never left, that had been serving his father faithfully all the way through, said, you know what, Dad? You never gave me any kind of a killed lamb to go out and party and have a good time with my friends. And we find that that parable isn't just about the prodigal son who needed to hope in God's grace. It's also about the obedient son who was ultimately self-righteous. Jesus tells a parable of two sons because that's two different individuals who are experiencing two different spiritual problems. Both are wrong. The path of radical discipleship, divorced from a belief and a hope in God's extravagant love and grace. When you separate these two out, the path of radical discipleship leads to pharisaical legalism. And I just can't help but wonder, as Paul is encountering these guys here in Acts chapter 19, and he notices there's something just a little bit off about them. They've been discipled in the way of John the Baptist who wore camel hair and ate locusts and honey out in the woods and just shunned the world. He's a total just going out into the, into the woods. He's, he's an aesthetic. He's not going to engage in any of the, the pageantry and any of the pomp and circumstance of the religious establishment. They've heard the baptism of John the Baptist. They've heard his message, repent and prepare your hearts for the one who is to come. And you can't help but wonder if maybe that's how they're living their lives. They're sort of withdrawing from society. They're trying to be holy in their own merit. And at the end of the day, they're exhausted. Paul encounters these guys, and he asks them the question, have you received the Holy Spirit? And this is where we begin to see the solution. These two paths, the path of extravagant grace, knowing, believing, hoping in God's love, as well as the path of radical discipleship, obey God, these two songs, these seemingly two very different songs, country and hip-hop, actually are the same song, and the only way they ever will come into harmony with each other is when they come into harmony in Christ, who must dwell in you through the Holy Spirit. That's what this text is really about. Paul shows up. He says, whoa, you guys, something weird about you. Um, your disciples, oh, yeah, we're discipleshipping to the extremes. That's good. That's good. Good, good, good. How's that working out for you? Well, we're discipleshipping to the extremes. Are you joyful? Joy? What? We're disciples here, man. We're serious. This is serious business. Are you full of love? No, because none of those other people are disciples. We're serious about walking with the Lord. 
You got the Holy Spirit? What? What are you talking about, Holy Spirit? We're disciples. We're obeying. Okay, I see what the problem is. And Paul begins to explain to them. To put on Christ means that Jesus comes and lives inside of you. To put on Christ means that you step into Christ. It means that these two things become perfectly and completely true in your life. You know that God loves you. You know that God died for you. You know that as a sinner, as you are the prodigal son, God welcomes you into his family. That is true. But when you enter into his family, don't think for one second that you're going to now just sit on the couch, remain as you are. God loves you so much that he welcomes you as you are with the purpose, the firm intention all along to clean you up, to put his spirit into you, and to enable you to live as though you are, you actually are a member of his family. You become a member of his family from the moment you hope in him. You become a member of God's family the moment you believe in the cross. And then day by day, he begins to shape you and mold you. And it's not this case where you're just gritting your knuckles and you're you're clenching your teeth and and just grasping at knuckles, just raw brute strength effort trying to obey. No, Christ is going to give you the power to obey. And we saw that last week. Jesus enters in. It's not so much about taking two different forks in the road and trying to decide which one we're going to go down. We understand that both of these are one and the same, and the solution is union with Jesus Christ. So in a very real sense, we can understand it by analogy of marriage. And this is what we are often missing. We are one with Christ the same way that husbands are one with their wives. We don't stop being who we are as a distinct person, but we're more than that when we have Christ living with us. This is an analogy which is given to us in Ephesians chapter 5, but it's not just a metaphor. It is real in the sense that the Holy Spirit is real, and the Scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit indwelling us, which means that just as a husband and wife are one through the union of matrimony, because of the Holy Spirit, we are one with Jesus. The analogy of a marriage fits in the same sense that I'm married to my wife, Shanti. I am also one with Jesus Christ. I don't stop being me, but... I am now living life with another person. Ladies and gentlemen who are married, you know how for however length of time you've been married, you began your marriage together one way, and within a week, some things had changed. Can I get an amen? Okay. Now, did your wife love you the moment you got down on one knee and proposed and said, please marry me? Yes, she loved you. She knew all about you. She knew who you were. You know, you dated for however length of time. You'd done the 101 questions on your first date. You'd gotten to know each other. You become friends. And in time, you get down on one knee. You say, honey, please marry me. And she says, yes, I will. And the same was true for her. You knew all about her. You get together. And guess what? From day one, things begin to change. I will share with you a true story. There was a man who married a woman who was raised vegetarian. And this particular man, being from Texas, 
loved meat, do those two go together? They do, by God's grace. And I'm not just going to put it all on the meat thing. I had some issues as well. I had this habit, which I didn't even know was a habit, in which I would take a shower, and after I'd get out of the shower, I'd just throw my towel on the floor. I'd dry off, you know, I'd throw it on the floor, and I'd get dressed. And and I didn't know this, but for 18, 19 years living with my mom, what had been happening mysteriously and unbeknownst to me was my mom was coming in and picking up that towel and hanging it up for me while I was at school every day. And then when I got married, my wife, this happened to me. This actually happened to me. And I know lots of guys that have told this exact story. This has happened to many of us. You come home from school. You come home from work. Hey, honey, how's it going? You're expecting a nice, lovely dinner to be cooked and to be ready for you. And, and you go in, and she's like, I, I just need to talk to you for a second. You're like, oh, yeah, baby, let's talk. You know, and it's, you're thinking it's, it's the first week of marriage. You know, it's going to be some romantic, lovey-dovey thing. She takes you into the, wa- into the washroom, and, uh, you know, there's the towel laying there on the floor, and you, you walk in there with her, and she points at the towel, and she's like, what's that? <laughs> and you know something is coming, but you're not sure you know, she knows that Shirley Shanti, she's smart. She has, a, she has a degree in horticulture and entomology from Texas A&M. I know she knows how to identify towels, right? So you begin to think, okay, maybe she thinks I'm stupid, that I don't know what it, that I really am not sure what's going on here. Maybe she's, so you're going to impress her with your knowledge. Well, that's a towel. Yeah, I know it's a towel. What's it doing right there? I don't know. I have no idea. Like, I'm totally befuddled right now. I do not know why that towel is sitting right there. This has never happened to me before. Well, I'll tell you why it's sitting right there. It's because that's where you left it this morning after you were finished with your morning shower. No, that couldn't be it. That's never happened to me before. Being married opens your eyes to things. You're living with another person. That other person has their own patterns, their own habits, their own behaviors, and your behaviors and your patterns are going to grate against that person's patterns and that person's behaviors. And so they draw your attention. Your wife draws your attention to it. And I will tell you, it's gone the other direction. My wife, when we first got married, she wanted to cook meat for me. First meat dish she ever prepared, having never, ever tried meat a day in her life until we got married. I come home from work. It is honey mustard chicken. A complicated dish to start off with. But for someone who has no idea what chicken tastes like, who has no idea what honey mustard chicken is supposed to taste like, and she's okay, I checked with her before I preached this morning, she's okay with me sharing this with you, it was perhaps the worst thing I've ever eaten in my life. And so, and again, raw honesty, the chicken was raw, so I felt like it was my job to be rawly, raw and honest with her. I'm eating this chicken, and I'm smiling. Mm, yummy, delicious. And she says, so is it good? And I lie, yeah, mmm, good, love it. 
And she's looking at me, and she's kind of smiling, and she's eating it. She's like, I think it's disgusting. Is this what this is supposed to taste like? And in that moment, you have, you have a choice to make. It's like she doesn't really know what this is supposed to taste like, and I can help her by saying it's not supposed to taste like this, or I can just go on and not ruin her night, and we can just go on and have a nice night, and then I'll wake up and go to work the next morning. She'll wake up and go to school the next morning, and this will never be an issue again. And she says, so it's really good? And I'm like, you know, it's okay. It's pretty good. She's like, so you'd be okay with me cooking this again next week? Mm. And then in this moment, she's like, just be real with me. I can't do it better if you don't tell me how I'm doing it wrong. And if this is really how it is, it's going on the menu. And then that moment, I have a choice to make. Do I want to endure whatever this is at least once a week for the rest of my life? No, I can't. I can't do that. I couldn't even do it in that moment. I was, like, creatively finding ways to, like, drop food on the floor for the dog to come and get it. And she picked up on all of that, right? So my wife, and many of you know this because you've been to our house, she's actually a phenomenal cook. We've been married now 20 years, and... uh, she can cook a mean steak. It didn't start that way from day one. And if you go into the bathroom, the towels, for the most part, will be hanging. And when they're not, I blame it on the kids. No, I've learned to hang up my towel. They haven't learned to hang up their towel, but for the most part, I've learned. I'm different because of walking with Shanti. And Shanti is different because of walking with me. And that is how you need to understand your relationship with Jesus Christ. You enter into that relationship with the Lord based on faith, based on what he's done for you on the cross. He is saying that he loves you. He is saying that he died for you, that he wants to begin a relationship with you. And so you begin that relationship, but don't enter into that relationship thinking that he will leave you unchanged. Walking with him, abiding with Christ will change you. You will not change you. You will participate. You will help. You will contribute to him sanctifying you. Jesus says that we are, in fact, called to change. He does call us to radical obedience. We see this over and over again in the scriptures. Hebrews says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In the book, in the gospels, time and again, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet not do the things that I say? He goes on to say that we are called to follow him, that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. These are huge, huge calls to discipleship, but they're not calls for us to begin discipling apart from Jesus. You say, how do we do that then? How do we grow in discipleship with Christ. And the scriptures tell us that we're called to do that through abiding. It's a fascinating passage. Just go with me. John chapter 15. I invite you to flip there. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. Um, Jesus begins with this analogy in which he compares himself to a vine. He says, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And then in verse 4, he says, abide in me, and I in you. He's saying, stay here with me. It sounds easy, like you don't have to do anything. You just stay 
put. You just don't move. And yet the verb in Greek is interesting in the sense that it is an active verb. It's one we are always having to do. The implication being that abiding in Jesus will require effort from us, but he calls us to it. Abide in me is not that different from a call to go home and have fellowship and have a relationship with your spouse. Stay here with me. Don't allow the world to pull you away. Abide. That's what Christ is calling us to. And so you're sitting here this morning, you're like, how do we actually practically do that? I have tried all my life, pastor, to abide, to walk with Christ, and I still find in my life there are huge, glaring areas that need to change. Moreover, my daily walk with Christ is still very much like that Gumby man you alluded to last week. For those of you who aren't here, you know you're driving down the freeway and there's those car dealerships and they have those, those like inflatable guys that are like going like this that are intended to get your attention and draw you in. I refer to them as green Gumby men. And you are here this morning You're saying there are days in which I deflate, there are days in which I'm riding high, I'm fully inflated, I'm not experiencing any consistency. How do I do this Christian life? Jesus says here that the call that we need to hear is not do more, radical discipleship. It's also not believe more, which is extravagant grace. It is both one and the same, both bound together in simply abiding in him. Stay close to Jesus. So how do we do that? How realistically are we supposed to do that? I'm going to give you four ways that you stay close to Christ, and then I'm going to conclude with a warning. What you're about to hear is not earth-shattering. I'm going to tell you what I've been telling you ever since I started here five, four year, almost five years ago now. I'm going to tell you what you need to do to abide in Christ. You're going to hear it again and again. I don't know how many times you've heard it. You will not hear anything new. But what I'm about to tell you, you need to actually follow. If you're experiencing in your own life this tension between do more versus believe more and still recognizing at the end of the day you're dry and not excited for the Lord, you need to follow these steps because they are means to abiding in Christ. Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to uh, a wind. In John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says the wind blows where it wills. And the whole passage is talking about the Holy Spirit. In the same way, understanding the Holy Spirit has been described as being like the wind, what I'm about to suggest to you could could be compared to hoisting a sail. I went uh, windsurfing one time. Let me rephrase that. I attempted windsurfing one time, and uh, I got out onto the water there, and I kind of paddled this board out, and it's got the little sail sticking up, and then you jump up on it, and you grab the, you grab the bar, and the wind wasn't blowing the right way, so it, like blew, it blew me over backwards the wrong way, so I'm like, okay, no worries, and I tried to spin the, the, the sail around the other direction, and I got up on the board, and by the time I got up onto the board the second time, the wind wasn't blowing at all. And so I sat there on the board holding this thing, not moving. And yes, I went, and I tried to like, you know, try to nudge it along, and it didn't work. What I'm about to tell you is that walking with Christ, abiding in Jesus, can be understood as hoisting a sail 
But you must remember at all times that what I am asking you to do, what the scriptures are calling you to do, while it will help you to hoist the sail, will never guarantee that the Spirit will fill that sail, that the Spirit will blow into it. And we will talk about that in a second. Number one thing you need to do, meditate upon Scripture. You must read the Bible. Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Psalm 1 says that the man who meditates on God's word day and night will be blessed, that he will bear fruit in his seasons. But we must meditate on God's word. The image that is given to us in Psalm 1 is that we have to be like trees planted beside the water. We have to be willing to be close to the water, to draw from the water. And time and again throughout scriptures, we understand from the word that the reading of the scriptures are how we draw from Christ. My wife says that when she began reading the Bible as a freshman, grade 9 student in high school, it meant nothing to her. She found the Lord, trusted in Jesus between grade 10 and grade 11, and when she accepted Christ in her life, that Bible transformed overnight. She understood it, but more than that, she sensed that God was talking to her through it. The scripture says that it itself is alive. It is a living word, active, sharp, dividing to the separation of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. We know God's word speaks to us. We know God wants to speak to us through the word. So then the question becomes, why don't we read it more? The problem, time and again, that I encounter as a pastor, I feel like my spiritual walk is dry. I feel like at the end of the day, the Lord is far from me. And the one of the first questions I always ask, tell me about your daily quiet times. I haven't read the Bible in probably 30 days. Well, no wonder you're feeling dry and distant from the Lord. He is speaking. You have not bothered to sit down and listen. His word is there. Grab it. Let him speak to you. More and more, I'm convinced that daily reading, daily quiet times must become a focused discipline, something that we do in order to allow God to speak to us. The second thing, prayer. Prayer, and not just praying a quick few prayers, God, heal my neighbor who broke her leg last week, but I'm talking persistent prayer over and over again, going before the Lord, lifting those needs up before him. Prayer makes a difference. God is the only one that can do certain things, and he calls us to talk to him, to make those requests of him, in prayer. Now, you can pray fervently all day long for certain things, and I'm here to tell you God will not answer that prayer. I told my son, Ben, that God grows closer to him, that he will sense growing closer to God if he will persist in prayer and continue going before the Lord and asking the Lord to, to change certain things in his life and, and to help him to be a better man. My son took that to heart, and I overheard him repeatedly praying for a real Lamborghini instead of the Hot Wheels car that he had. I said, son, I've gone wrong as your father. This is on me. I need to clarify. 
I want you to know, church, that you can pray all day long for certain things, and the Lord isn't going to answer that prayer request. But then that helps us to see what it is that God is calling us to in persistent prayer. We know God hears our prayers. We know God answers our prayers, which means that when we persist in prayer for certain things, and we wait to see God's answering those prayer requests, we begin to see how he answers certain prayers. We begin to see which prayers resonate in his heart that find a place in him that agree and align with his will. And we hear the answer sometimes, no, which tells us something about the Lord as well. Prayer is part getting the Lord's help in your life and part getting your life lined up with the will of God. Both things are accomplished in prayer. Time and again, you talk to people, I feel like my life is dry, my walk with Christ is, is shallow, and you begin to engage in conversation. What are the things that you go to prayer for? What are the things that you wrestle with God in prayer about? And time and again, it's something trivial, like I've been praying for the last two days for my friend who has the cold. That's not that persistent, two days worth. And, you know, colds are worthy of prayer. Don't misunderstand me, but the cold is not lethal. The common cold is not going to kill you. We got a whole world, a whole city of people right out our door that are going to hell because they don't know the Lord. And are we praying for them? Are we praying for the people that live right across the driveway from us to come to know the Lord? Persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. Third thing, abiding with Christ through worship. This is another discipline by which we may draw the sail and capture the wind of the Holy Spirit. Being united with Christ, being in a union with Jesus changes the way that we worship. We can come now to worship aware that Christ is present in us, that Christ is indeed our high priest who is leading us into the Father's presence. When we're worshiping with this understanding that we're one with Jesus, we can remember every week that we are not the only ones singing, but that Christ is worshiping in us, through us, praising and worshiping the Father. He also worships with us. That should radically change the way that we approach worship. Time and again we come in, we're like, well, I'm kind of tired. Even though we had the clocks fall back an hour last night, I still didn't get enough sleep. I was up too late, and I'm not feeling energetic. I'm not up to this. You know that despite however you're feeling, Jesus Christ in you is dying to worship the Father. It's not at all any different than a husband and a wife waking up on a Sunday morning, and the wife wants to go to church and praise the Lord, but the husband drags his heels and says, No, I don't feel like it today. Jesus living in you longs to worship and praise the Lord. He longs for it. And yet often we come to church as critics. I liked that. I didn't like that. I appreciated the way that the song leader transitioned between this song to that song. We're thinking about worship as though we're connoisseurs. 
as though we're here to offer our opinions on it, missing the point all the way through that Christ is in us longing to give praise to the Father. If you would just join with the Lord in worshiping the Father, this is another means by which you draw the sail, another means by which you raise the sail in which the Holy Spirit can work in your life. And the fourth thing is this, abiding in community. Worshiping together is a part of the church. How can we say that we are one with Christ, that we have union with Jesus if we don't abide in what the Bible refers to as the body of Christ? Union with Christ means being united not only to Jesus, but also to others who are in him. And so abiding in Christ cannot be separated from abiding in Christian community. How could it be? It could never be that way. Being together with each other in the church strengthens us. We encourage each other. And it is through those gifts of encouragement, through those gifts of teaching, various ways that we're blessed inside the church, that the Holy Spirit wants to lift our gaze and show us that Christ really is near to us, that we are walking with the Lord. And so I give you those four things, meditating upon the scripture, persistent prayer, abiding in worship, going to church, worshiping the Lord, and then abiding in a Christian community. And with all of that said, I want to offer you this final caution. Expect doldrums. Expect them. You say, doldrum? What is that? A doldrum, it's a nautical term. The doldrums are an area near the equator where the water is especially warm. And so the wind can die down suddenly, leaving a sailing ship stranded for an extended period of time. In the Christian life, we're called to draw near to the Lord. And there are certain things we can do to sense more of his presence, to have more of his spirit not more of his spirit in our life, but a greater awareness of the spirit in us. And we can do all of these things, and yet at the end of the day, we may still experience seasons of dryness. It may yet happen. I am convinced that these doldrums, these seasons of dryness and deflation, where we're like Gumby men who have fallen down to the ground, they're just as important as those highs that we have in life. A dear friend of mine often recounts to me how when he was a teenager in high school, first walking with the Lord, at that time in his life, he knew such joy and such excitement and such enthusiasm. And life has moved on, and now he has, you know, three kids and counting. He's been married for 10, 15 years now. And the enthusiasm and the joy and the excitement that he had in those early days when he trusted in the Lord, he doesn't experience those moments quite the same way and definitely not as frequently as he used to back when he was in high school. The doldrums are important an important and necessary part of learning to abide in Christ. Why? How? They protect us from the dangerous temptation of enthroning our experience of Christ over Christ. They protect us from the temptation of exalting or enthroning our experience of Christ over Christ. 
See, if you always got a high or a spiritual surge, whatever term you want to use to describe it, every single time that you got down to pray or every single time that you cracked open the word to read it, if you got that high every single time, then it would be easy to shift your focus away from pursuing a relationship with Christ. You would shift your focus away from that and you would shift it instead to a focus on your own immediate gratification. The focus now is no longer encountering the person of Jesus. The focus is on you getting the high. Do you see that, church? It becomes less about the horizon and more about just having another spiritual jolt. In the name of seeking God, you're turning God into some sort of a cosmic genie that is there in order to help you maintain a sense of control over your own life. And it's precisely because of that, which does come from Bible reading and prayer, it's precisely because of that and because of the real God whom we're seeking that God from time to time doesn't give you the jolt. He doesn't give you the high. You have to learn to be dependent upon him. He's God. And that means you have to learn from time to time to wait on him. We don't like to wait. I got five minutes. I'm going to crack my Bible. And by four minutes and 59 seconds, I need to be feeling pretty good because then I'm off to work. So God, I'm putting you on the clock. Here we go. All too often, that's you and me. The Lord says to us in John chapter 15, Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's a terrifying truth, but in order for it to become life-giving to us, we have to be made aware. God has to make us aware, sometimes painfully so, that we simply cannot coerce or control God by our own maneuvering. You say, I can't force God to come to me through Bible reading and prayer and worship. Well, then why bother with any of those things? Because Jesus is in you and he calls you to it and he gives you the strength to do it. You will experience the jolt. You will experience the high. But not every single time. The doldrums are there to remind you that it is the real God that you are seeking. And you must wait on him because he is God. When I share that with you, be assured, be assured that the most important times of meditation and prayer come when you enjoy them perhaps the least. Jesus is good. He is with us. He is in us. And we are one with him. Let's pray, church. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for your word and its clarity. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that for those of us who are with you, who are in you, our prayer, Lord, is that you would help us to continue to seek you, to walk with you, and to rest in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please rise as we continue in worship?
thank you for those dry seasons that we go through from time to time in which you seem far away and the billows roll across our hearts and we know we are we know lord that you are with us in that moment we know we are not forgotten not forsaken 
In all things, Lord, help us to remember always to say that it is well with our souls because your son Jesus died on the cross. We say thank you for that. We worship you, Lord, today for that. You are worthy of all of our worship, and we just again say thank you in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, God bless you all for being here. Uh, You're dismissed. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. And remember, we have a business meeting back here at 1 o'clock, but you're dismissed. And go grab a bite to eat, and we'll see you back here at 1.